San Francisco is the first city to allow for driverless taxis with no restrictions. VCs are not saving many dying startups, and Gulf countries have just purchased thousands of semiconductor chips to join the AI arms race. I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. San Francisco's driverless taxis can now provide ride services to paying passengers. San Francisco is set to be the first city in America to allow driverless taxis without restriction. Last week, the California Public Utilities Commission gave full permission to robo-taxi cars despite pushback from critics who say the tech is not yet safe enough and from unions that fear the driverless fleets will endanger the jobs of taxi and other ride-sharing drivers. Alphabet's Waymo and General Motors Cruise are the leading driverless car providers. Until last Thursday's 3-to-1 vote, Waymo and Cruise's cars were commonly seen on the road but were limited in where they could travel and carry passengers. While some fear fewer restrictions of driverless tech could potentially harm jobs, the industry projects to be lucrative. A McKinsey report from earlier this year shows that autonomous driving could create $300 billion to $400 billion in revenue by 2035. To learn more about San Francisco's landmark driverless car decision, I spoke with George Kellerman. My name is George Kellerman. I'm the managing director of Woven Capital. Woven Capital is Toyota's $800 million early stage venture fund. George is also the VP and Head of Investments and Acquisitions for Woven by Toyota. George, with this news, do you expect we'll see a rise in VC funding directed towards driverless car companies? VC investment in autonomous vehicle technology you know, went through a, a peak a couple of years ago, and it's been in a decline over the last uh, couple of years, mostly because a lot of the automobile OEMs have been reshifting their focus what we call ADADAS, autonomous driving, uh, advanced driver assistance systems, things like forward collision warning, blind spot uh, monitoring, uh, the the things that customers are coming to expect in their vehicles today. And we've also seen a lot of the startups in the space go through difficult times, in some cases consolidate or or actually leave uh, the industry. And, And that's partly because the technology is really, really, really hard make a a true autonomous vehicle that can operate in all conditions. And so while I don't believe there's going to be a short-term increase in investment in the space, I do believe there will be a consistent and constant investment in the space because it's about moving the technology forward. And we still have a long way to go to actually having truly driverless autonomous vehicles in a majority of situations. What does this mean for taxi and Uber drivers? Could this decision be the beginning of the end for the human-powered ride-sharing industry? I don't believe it is, largely because I believe we're still very far away from building fleets, large fleets of autonomous vehicles. We're still really in the testing phase. You know, even with Waymo and Cruise, really what they received is permission to test 24/7 on public roads, but they're still testing, uh, and. Part of what they're also testing is the business model. Uh, it's, it's not clear to me that the business model has been proven and that it warrants investment in building large-scale fleets of autonomous vehicles. The, the hardware and the technology is still quite expensive, and there's still a lot of refinement and investment that needs to take place in the technology itself. So I, I don't believe it's the beginning of the end. Uh, uh, I, I believe it's just another natural step in the process of making mobility available to all people and making it safer. 
Do you expect other U.S. cities to follow San Francisco's lead and give the green light to driverless cars? That's a tough question because in the United States, as you know, we're in a very odd political moment. And the reason I say that is technology companies have been under the spotlight in, in the last you know year or two, um, particularly um, you know the, what they call big tech. And there's been somewhat of a, of a backlash in some sectors. But at the same time, I think the more uh, progressive cities, and by that I don't mean necessarily liberal, but I just mean progressive in terms of forward thinking and and really thinking about their constituency and and providing services to their constituents uh, are willing to test. And it's also, uh, I believe, a, a good thing that this has happened because it shows that it's possible. It will enable other cities to say, well, if they were able to do it, then maybe we can do it. And ultimately, as I said, testing is on public roads is going to be required, but you, you can't do all the testing in one city. You have to test in different cities, different road configurations, traffic configurations, climate. All of those things are going to be important. And ultimately, any city you want to launch in, you're going to have to test in that city first. So. I think it'll open the door. I don't necessarily believe it'll be a floodgate that opens, but uh, I do think we're going to see more and more cities come online uh, and see the advantage of at least testing. George, would you ride in a driverless car? Do you feel they are safe and dependable enough? So that's a a, a tricky question. Uh, (laughs) It's unique to me. And the reason I say that is because, uh, and you may not be aware of this, uh, I'm a former firefighter and rescue crew chief. Uh, I made a living of running into burning buildings, so I have a very high risk tolerance. I personally have ridden in um, autonomous uh, vehicles before, whether, but there was a safety driver, so let me, let me qualify that. So there was a human in the driver's seat who could take over. Whether I would be comfortable, uh, I would really need to know who it was. I, I, I'm not going to make a blanket statement and say I'd get into any autonomous vehicle. I'd want to know, you know who the provider is, how well that technology has been tested uh, in real world situations. I don't want to be the guinea pig or the first person to, uh, to test that technology. But you know, generally speaking, uh, under the right circumstances, absolutely, I'd be more than willing to, uh, to jump into an autonomous vehicle and take it for a ride on a public road. That was George Kellerman, Managing Director of Woven Capital. George, I appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for uh, having me on your show. It's no secret venture funding is down. We've talked about it nearly every week here on Venture Daily. The latest consequence of the downturn is a growing trend in venture. VCs are pulling back from spending on dying startups that don't show a clear path to profitability. Before recent venture downturn, startups that showed steady growth would usually receive continued funding. Not so much anymore. According to PitchBook, investment in U.S. tech startups has dipped 49% in the last 12 months. Startups just aren't receiving funding like they were a year ago, and because of it, they're failing. Zoom, a robot pizza delivery startup that raised $500 million, shut down in June. Plastic, a company that raised over $200 million and was valued at close to a billion, declared bankruptcy in May. Buzzer, a mobile sports platform backed by Michael Jordan, also closed up shop in June. Paparazzi, Gorillas, Parade, and now most recently Hopin are among the most notable companies to either shut down or lose hundreds of millions in valuation since 2020. VCs just aren't taking as many big risks anymore in the bear market. To get some perspective on it all, I spoke with Simeon Dukac. My name is Simeon Dukac, and I'm the founding partner of One Way Ventures. 
One Way Ventures primarily invests in immigrant entrepreneurs. Simeon, help us understand the big picture. Why have firms taken a step back from taking risky bets on early stage startups? Well, there's an economic cycle going on, and you know this one is fairly predictable relative to other recent turmoil, right? I mean, inflation got out of hand, the Fed's raising rates, so everything pulled back. I would say we're probably towards the end of that at this point, and you know the public markets, which are much more forward-looking, uh, already up pretty close to the all-time highs, I think. So I would say that uh, the VCs will follow in due course. I'm, I actually probably already have. VCs seem to be avoiding funding companies that don't show signs of a clear path to revenue and profitability. What ingredients does a startup need to have to make a desirable bet for firms right now? Well, we're seed investors, right? So we invest in the early stages. Right. So it, for us, it's much more about the right entrepreneur uh, and the right team. You know, we're looking for people who are immigrants, who've gone through some real hardship and who want to quit, who will iterate, who will talk to customers and find a way to build a really big disruptive business. And I would say that's um, the economic cycle is a little bit less relevant at our stage because, I mean, these, these folks are usually a few years away from from real massive growth anyway. And um, by the time they're ready to you know, really scale their businesses will be a different cycle regardless. So we don't look at it quite as much. Uh, but, um, you know, in general, I think investors always want to back companies that will be profitable eventually, right? It's just a question of when and how. And uh, I think uh, for the right idea, there's still plenty of room to invest in building the tech and uh, building other things that require some time, right? So that the profitability comes on accounts. Simeon, if a large majority of struggling companies don't make it through the end of the year and are forced to shut down, do you expect there'll be long-term consequences in venture markets? How many of those startups do you think would have become winners? I think the majority of startups always end up failing, at least failing at their goal of building really large disruptive businesses. You can't have too many large disruptive businesses, right? Almost by definition. Um, I think this cycle is, is healthy. I think uh, things got a little frothy and overheated for a while, uh, as they do from time to time. And I think right now, uh, at this point, you know, most of the companies that uh, couldn't find a business model have already probably failed or uh, soon to fail. And I think the ones that survive are going to emerge much stronger, right? With less competition, uh, with uh, perhaps uh, lower costs to acquire customers because the advertising market is down as well. And uh, I think they're going to do great. If you're a new startup and you don't have an immediate path to revenue growth, how can you still attract VC funding right now? Well, VC funding is never a question of your quickest path to your earliest revenues. VC funding is a question of uh, having a, a vision and some realistic way of getting to that vision of building something really large, really significant, really meaningful you know, to the market as a whole. So uh, how quickly you bring your revenues in is rarely the most important question right the question is will you find product market fit are you solving like a real need do you have customers who you really understand and emphasize with who really want what what the thing that you're building and then do we have a path to get to them and can you attract a strong enough team can you recruit amazingly strong people to work for you instead of starting their own company those challenges remain and um i think uh, you know, the quick uh, up round, the, the quick giant valuations is not really the stuff that the right founders are looking for. The right founders are looking for meeting their customers' needs in, in a significant and differentiated way. That was Simeon Dukach, founding partner of One Way Ventures. Thanks, Simeon. Thanks for having me. 
Saudi Arabia and the UAE have entered the AI arms race. Yesterday, the Financial Times reported that Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are buying thousands of NVIDIA semiconductor chips to further their AI capabilities. According to the report, Saudi Arabia has purchased at least 3,000 H100 chips from NVIDIA amid global shortages of semiconductors. 3,000 chips cost $120 million. For context, OpenAI built ChatGPT using only around 1,000 A100 chips, NVIDIA's former chip. The majority of the chips are expected to be sent to the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia. They'll be used to create the nation's own large language model, and the team they've assembled to build the LLM is primarily staffed by researchers from China. The UAE government has also purchased an undisclosed amount of NVIDIA chips, which it plans to use for more LLM-related applications in cloud services, according to the Financial Times. One of the fears surrounding the UAE and Saudi Arabia's focus on AI is their potential disregard for the ethical use of their tech. Averna McGowan, director of the Center for Democracy and Technology's Europe office, said this to the Financial Times. We know how AI can have discriminatory impacts or be used to turbocharge unlawful surveillance. It's a frightening thought. The U.S. and China now face two new, very wealthy players entering the race to superior AI technology. As Gulf region nations strengthen their supercomputing capabilities, we'll continue to keep you updated on the global AI arms race. Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all tomorrow morning.